I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to be in Tim Faulkner's office, the co-director of the Australian Reptile Park and president of Aussie Ark. G'day, mate. Good morning. Mate, thanks for having us backstage here and letting us have a look around your park. What an amazing place, the Australian Reptile Park. Yeah, no, and thanks for coming here and having any interest in in me and our activities. The park, as you said, it's an amazing place, one of the first wildlife tourism facilities in Australia and steeped in a history that to this day is still unusual. You know, we have a core focus of being entertaining, balancing that with education, but doom and gloom messaging, yeah, people switch off. And so engaging kids and connecting them with nature in a park like this, we don't keep lions and tigers and bears. It's not a subjective choice that they're the wrong or right species, but we're a native immersive experience. And then you go to venom production. Uh, since the 1950s, we've been the sole supplier of terrestrial snake venom for the production of anti-venom. Saved around 20,000 lives uh, as of six months ago. Um, really big thing for a private organisation. And, uh, and beyond that, you've got our wonderful founders and uh, co-directors, John and Robin Weigel, um, who are still very active. And we have wonderful conservation activities. And so for me to sit in this office with you guys, I think I've got one of the best and well-rounded positions in the world. It's lovely. I think you're right. (laughs) I think Steve particularly likes your office. I I do, yeah. yeah. We go on about them a lot just on the last last few shows, but I'm sat in front of some adult Owen Pelly pythons. Yeah, well, they're... uh... Which Tim won't put on show at the moment. No. He's being possessive. We will. Well, you know, in actual fact, John Weigel won't let me use the rough-scale python enclosure for Owen Pelly's because it's a rough-scale python enclosure. Very dear to his heart. But there are three Owen Pelly's there, and I was lucky enough in April this year, myself and 10 work colleagues, along with a couple of friends and all of our kids went to Kakadu. We spent a bunch of nights in search for uh, for the elusive ghost, and... um, in the last night or the last minute of the last uh, day, we, um, we found one. And mate was tying his shoelace and as he came up, his head torch lifted into the tree and there it was 20 metres up. And it was a, a wildlife highlight that was shared amongst friends, family, work colleagues and I guess the pursuit and interest of, of animals. That's what it's all about, right? The most wholesome experience to share. And I'm not one to enjoy doing anything by myself. I need to look sideways and... You know, slap someone over the back, and uh, it was just absolutely wonderful and a, a, a brilliant species. I am hoping to do that at some point for sure. Well, get up there quick. I mean, uh, people say they eat birds, and some say they eat mammals, and they probably eat it all. But um, I mean, Kakadu's had a 92% decline in its mammal biomass, and if they do eat mammals, it's going to hurt them. Yeah. I think that's kind of the case throughout Australia. If you want to see it, go now. Well, you'd like to see. Am I right in saying every vertebrate in Australia? Yeah, since, uh, you know, I had trends when I was young. I mean, I was just a reptile nut. But I worked with a lot of birds and a lot of mammals. I was very familiar with them, um, you know, in a very close-up perspective in the hand and the captive management and husbandry, etc. But at about 20, I got into twitching. And um, twitching generally is associated, an old British term, which was for the guys that... uh, a vagrant bird turns up, and I'll give you an example of a vagrant bird in Australia. You might have a typhoon in the Philippines when it's a migratory time of year, and so there might be some little passerines, some little perching birds that get blown way off course and turn up anywhere from Alice Springs to Cairns, Sydney in between. And if one turned up right now, 
these headphones would be off me and I'd be out that door <laughs> while you guys are still sitting here wondering what I'm doing. And that was on the Twitch and on the hunt for the bird. Put your phone on silent. <laughs> You're correct. <laughs> and so um, so the, the thing is that, you know, the idea on that is a, a pursuit to see every bird in Australia. You run out of them pretty quick. So then you go to all your external territories, Christmas Island, Cocos Keeling, Ashmore Reef, Torres Strait, Norfolk, Lord Howe, Macquarie Island, Heard Island. And then you run out of them and you hope that rare birds turn up. Like there's a Eurasian teal, uh, first ever mainland record turned up yesterday. Um, I don't know if it's in Broome or Queensland. I've seen one on Cocos Keeling, so my interest levels are not what they would be otherwise. <laughs> um, but that's the art of twitching. And so, but, um, you know, I've always been interested in, 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 in all the vertebrates. And so, I don't know, probably half a dozen years ago, I've seen 782 Australian birds. There's only 750 mainland breeding regulars. So that already includes a whole bunch of external territory and vagrant birds. That's amazing. That, that's, that's, that's a big so number. Much. That's and a, a lot of time. And you, 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 you can't do it overnight, believe me. Um, and I still very much appreciate the backyard birds, um, meaning, you know, I, I keep myself interested too by doing things like um, year lists. And what that means is a noisy miner becomes exciting again because I've got to seem to put on that year list. And But anyway, I expanded to vertebrates, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and it's wonderful. Uh, I mean, there's there's a thousand, a thousand plus species of reptiles. Um, you know, the tenotus, the striped skinks, there's over a hundred species scattered throughout Australia. So the, the one on the sheet at the end of the day is fun and my reward, and that's the OCD, but um, the reality is, you have to cover every square inch of Australia. And that's what I love, with family, friends, and um, it's a great interest. It's modern day hunting, if you like, and you research, you find out everything about it, you go and target the species, you turn up and you shoot it, you just got a camera instead of a gun. And um, it probably fulfills some primitive need of pursuing that type of activity. I know what you mean about twitching. We were at Brobby Island one year and a laughing goal had yep. been seen yep. and there were people everywhere with cameras and binoculars like, have you seen it have you seen it yep. we just happened to be there bird watching with yep. binoculars we had no idea yep. um, yeah and, and you look at a picture of it and it looks very similar to a lot of other goals oh it does it does <laughs> yeah no but there's a whole story behind it and um you know the 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 community is also uh, really great and it's one thing that i'll compliment social media for in the digital age is that the sharing of information is much easier i mean you vagrants turn up and they stay around a day or a week and if you had to post that in the mail to someone the bird's gone by the time you got there um so you know air travel and others um it, it's a fun thing to do but the community is is wonderful and you know there's there's lots of them but the the stigma of you know the bird watchers are gray-haired elderly gentleman with binoculars that's not how it is and there's a, a really young crop especially with the vertebrates even my mates that are just hardcore herpers and real great photographers but they don't miss the mammals and the birds and the amphibians and i just think that that fits a really nice naturalist mold because if you're into all of that you're into the landscape you understand it um and it's it's a, it's a really lovely thing to do yeah, up until the last five years, I've been very focused on reptiles, yeah. mainly even pythons, yeah. like that tunnel vision. Yeah. Um, but this last five years, doing this show for the last couple of years, hanging out with Adrian, yes, it's just like even down to the bush. Like I know now what the most important part is. Yeah, yeah. And it's from the bush up. Yeah, yeah, right? correct. And, and things like that. But yeah, I never would have known. But it's very interesting. Yeah, the and a wonderful country. I'm semi well travelled throughout the world, but I just can't stop myself from. I almost. Like every three years, there's a cycle where I'm like, oh, 
I gotta go somewhere other than Australia, and then I do it, and then I think I'm not gonna do that again, <laughs> and then it takes three years to catch up. But you know, I mean, uh, on the seventh of September, I'm off with my family. I, I Adelaide up to Coobapedi from Coobapedi across to Ilkirkla for uh, trying for Tempralis, your, your, your Western tie, and then over through the Western deserts over to, to Geraldton, and then up the coast up to Broome. And I don't know how many times I've done it, but I'm doing it again, and I, I just love it. It's um, it's it's just wonderful, and the um. The, the diversity in species and I guess too the thing is the uniqueness in Australia never grows old on me and I realise how many special places and unique animals there are throughout the world but you know lots of these things I mean there's cats on every continent except Australia there's dogs on every continent except Australia and, and the recent introduction of the dingo in Australia but there's still a similarity whether you're in Asia or you're in South America or you're in, there's, there's a similarity and it's all has nothing in common with Australia you know, and you, you get up towards your, your North Kimberley and West Papua and you've got tree kangaroos and uh, birds of paradise and this, these reptiles and you jump across the pond to Sumatra or Borneo, etc. And uh, you've now got primates and dogs and cats and bears and um, that's fundamentally the isolation that, um, that Australia enjoyed for who knows how long, but we are so different to the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah, we're on, the, we're on the good side of Wallace's line, I reckon. Yeah, correct. Mm. Correct. Um, and that, uh, have you talked about Wallace before? Well, you, we did a bit when we went to Borneo, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, my uh, a good mentor, and he's on the, the Aussie Art Committee of Management, Paul Andrew, was spending a lifetime fascinated with Alfred Russell Wallace and backstory for the listeners not yourself of course but and he was the, the co-founder of the theory of evolution and as the, as the story tells and I could be wrong but basically he was in the field practicing it very very heavily uh, throughout Wallachia whilst uh, whilst Darwin was busy riding away and and so Wallachia or Wallace's line is the point that separates Australia and New Guinea from the rest of the world and most I mean you've only got uh, you know I don't know few hundred kilometres or more between islands where you've got marsupials and no placental mammals, you jump across and we're talking tigers and great apes and rodents. And the thing is, I think, that complements that and, and onto sort of the fragility of Australia is that I, I don't like to, even though I'm just about to reference it, but I don't like to say that our animals aren't smart or, or dare I say dumb or something like this. In my mind, I, I see it as um, that they evolved in a landscape where adaptations for uniqueness outweighed intelligence so we have really weird and quirky things that um, fit into a landscape like Australia whereas the rest of the world with that connectivity of, 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 of all the other land masses they had to outcompete each other hard and um, and hence why you've got you know a Tasmanian devil that uh, has a skull three times the mass of a fox but its brain is three times smaller same goes with cats and so our, our marsupials they just don't have the same intelligence as the placental mammals. And that Wallace's line is the separating point of that. And I guess um, fair to say that the placentals have breached that line uh, through introductions and ship-assisted and however the hell they got here to Australia, they're here now. And um, it's why we face the extinction crisis and, um, and state of affairs that this beautiful country is in. Because they quite literally outwit what's already it's here. Just too smart. Almost, yeah. Yep, I mean... Um, I mean, you've got dogs that hunt in packs and dingoes would have had their impact, but essentially, you know, may have displaced the thylacine and devil, but they kind of fit it in um, and, it, and, it, and it worked. I mean, there were extinctions of megafauna 50,000 years ago, but between then and recently, there weren't many. And so the dingoes 5,000 years ago seemingly didn't have a really significant effect on the landscape. But you bring in fox and cat 
you know, we've lost an incredible amount of our biomass and biodiversity. And the uh, the thing is, we, we almost hold the world record for the greatest uh, rate of extinctions. We hold that for the greatest rate of mammal extinctions. And most of them are in the critical weight range, which is, uh, what, 0.5 of a kilo to half a kilo. And basically, they're all the little brown furry things come to mind would be, you know, uh, not necessarily the extinctions, but like things like numbats, bilbies, quolls, um, certainly our little rodents and, um, and, uh, and little dasiurids, pouch carnivores and things like that. And so we had predators, you, you imagine it, just like a devil is, is not a wonderful predator. It's a 44-gallon drum with legs. It's a scavenger, opportunistic predator. But, but I mean, like imagine a devil chasing a bandicoot and... A bandicoot's escape strategy is to run three metres and stop. And you can see the devil trying to sniff the air and like, where did he go, George? You know, just where did he go? And compare that to the wit and cunningness of a fox or a cat. Even look at quolls. I mean, they they are predators, baby-faced assassins. You know, they look cute, but they're deadly. But you compare it to a quoll, they're still, they're not the fox. They're not the cat. And so these predatory skills that they have and the lack of exposure to that over a very long time of Australian natives just meant that they are incredibly vulnerable and the loss of the the, the mammals because of of that and reiterating that again on the Australian side we didn't have cats dogs primates pigs ungulates all of that and you did in Asia and then across the rest of the world I think the fox and cat are responsible for 92 percent of all mainland extinctions there are combining effects, urban sprawl and pollution and climate change and all these things, granted, but it's an interesting thing that you go to the remotest parts of Australia, you know, there's no one there, you might even walk in for days and they're not pristine and, and they're rugged and they're remote, and but they're not untouched, they're not unspoilt, they're not pristine, um, they're generally invaded by feral pests in one way or another and they reach everywhere. And there doesn't seem to be a a real solution for that at the moment. But it does seem that we're waking up. And I I think that, you know, without being critical, that, you know, we risk that, you know, society or Australians see a cow paddock as the bush. It's not. And we risk that, you know, there is, and I've been guilty of it, and I try very hard not to, but there is a desire for good news stories. Like I said about the the reptile park, um, people don't want to come here and have a bad day coming here to have fun and it's our job to constructively educate them with positive messaging without saying everything's fine but there's a desire and we continually only hear about the good news stories and so there's a perception that oh someone else is looking after it and that's not the case the reality is that Australia's in a in a, in a very bad way but it does seem that we are waking up to that and undoubtedly the scoreboard is showing that things aren't good it's just a, a strange situation with what you're saying if you're too negative, you can almost make people go, oh, what's the point? Yeah. If you're too positive, you're going to make people go, oh, well, everything's all right then. So it's really yeah, hard to hit It's hard. And even then you've got to throw in the complexities of you can put a message across, but media might put it another way. Mm. And so, you, you know, it, it can be difficult. And, but I think, um, you know, the, just something good to reference is like school teachers that teach young children. If they teach negative, the kids don't listen. Mm. Uh, and I guess on that note too, I mean, my target audience is kids. I can't change the opinions of grown people and I can't change the opinions of grandparents within reason. But, you know, the principle, you get the kid, you got mum, dad and grandparents, three generations in one, go for the kid. Yeah. And, um, and so the thing with the teachers, I mean, these guys have got to teach maths and all this stuff that 
my kids aren't interested in like catching a lizard, but they do it and they have to do it through a fun learning workspace. If they don't, it doesn't work. And so the same in, in that regard that uh, the messaging can't just be um, that, you know, everything's fine. It can't just be that everything's not fine. Somewhere between that is the right way of, of doing it. And I guess in some contexts, like you guys are doing here today with this thing and other, other activities, uh, broad scale, I think leading by example and just showing is a fundamentally good way to do it. And if you can engage the kids in that, you got them. And this place does an amazing job at doing that. One of the things that stands out to me, firstly, when you come to the reptile park is you've got such beautiful plants around the place yes. and interp about the plants and yep. that really connects people with the foundation of, of yep. the environment, the habitat that the animals need. Yeah, well, John's been really particular. John Weigel's been very particular about that always in their time. It's a very immersive experience and he thinks about it in ticks and crosses, if you like. And so, you know, if you turn up to the front gate before you even entered the park, there's a bit of rubbish on the ground. you just got to cross. And even if people don't know it, there's a very subconscious thing that happens um, and so you've got to balance those ticks and crosses like when it's busy we kind of we can't avoid a line at the front and you've got to cross instantly but we can have people engaging with animals throughout that process and we can have a wonderful temple of doom with a frill neck lizard you walk through and we can have an immersive experience and so when you go out into the park I mean you've picked up on it but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily pay as much attention to those plants and interpretive as they would the Komodo dragon but they saw it and it went into their mind and it had some effect, you know? Um, and so it's been a, a, a fundamental thing that we're a very themed park. And by themed, I don't mean uh, like a, a theme park. You know, the Komodo dragon is a real step into Asia. And the lost world of reptiles is the ancient pharaohs. And spider world, you know, it's scary for kids, but you walk in and the first thing you see is a dancing spider. <laughs> and it just, you know, lessens that. Um, and uh, you're very important. And so the, the, the natural aesthetics and the landscape, we're very lucky that we're on the Summersby Plateau on the, the edge of the Sydney Sandstone Basin. And we've got a natural creek that runs right through the park. And so it's a, a really nice setting. Was that John who did the rap on the dancing spider? He wrote it. He wrote it. He didn't do. <laughs> no, I want to. Yeah. I was, no, that be John? no, no, no. It wasn't John. He he could tell you who it was. It, I can't remember. But um, but no, he wrote it. But he didn't sing it. Yeah. We really enjoyed the nocturnal house you got there. Yeah. And it's funny. I walked past that big tree hollow. Yeah. Didn't even notice until I was up on the decking and it said press the button. Yeah. And all these things come to life up yeah, in that the tree yeah, hollow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, that, that, I don't want to spoil it for people that come here, but. I walk straight under it. Just shows you yeah. like the things you could miss when you're walking in the bush. Yeah. And what a great message that is. Mm. No, it is, and, uh, and and very important that um, you know where we are up in the Barringtons. That's the one thing is look at something like greater gliders that are endangered. I mean, greater gliders can do quite well in regenerating forest. The problem is there's nowhere to sleep if the big trees are all gone. So you've got a food source with no. And those hollows like that that are so commonly taken down for firewood and whatnot are very, very important. Even when they fall over, they're, they're, they're as equally as important on the ground. Uh, but sadly, again, very removed for firewood. We live in Adelaide and we don't have any feather tail gliders anymore, which I saw yep. here today for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen them before. Well, you want to know something funny? There's a nest of wild feather tail gliders above that enclosure. Really? Oh, wow. I, I, I guess it must start with like a male smelling some females in the... But, uh, I mean, you know, they're the size of a mouse, so they get in through an easy crack. And I was up in the roof one day, my, my brother's our electrician, and, um, I was up in the roof and he said to me, there's a nest up here. I said, oh, just take me a photo. Oh, sorry, he was in the roof. He, I said, just take me a photo. He sent it to me and I knew instantly it was pygmy possum or feather tail because the leaves are just quite nicely placed, always eucalypt there. They, 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 they're still not fresh but not you know absolutely dead they're just placed in this beautiful little cup and so i um i went and had a look and uh, there were a couple of little feather tails in there so um yeah fascinating that's amazing is it true they can climb glass yeah 
Yeah, so they don't have suction caps. Um, and so feather tail gliders are the smallest species of Australian glider. They look like a sugar glider, but they're probably six to eight grams in weight. So we're, we're talking something that's probably about the size of your thumb. And it's got a little uh, feather-looking tail. And so they don't have suction caps. The little hairs on their finger pads are so fine that they can get into the imperfections on glass. On glass. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, just fascinating. That proves how light they are as well. To mm. be able yeah, to that's right. That's yep. insane. I'd love to see them put back in the wild. I mean, we were talking earlier about Dr. David Peacock, who we had on the show last yep. week, and a friend of yours as well. His idea was to put Western quolls back in the Flinders Ranges, yeah. and on the back of uh, Operation Bounce Back, it's, it's become a reality, and it's successful. Yeah, well, I was there. For, very fortunately, I was invited because uh, one of, another of my, my, my great mentors, and I've been very fortunate to latch on to these people, uh, is Chris Chapman. And Chris Chapman is... Uh, he initially started in the... He's a practising lawyer, but a, a, a real conservationist. And he was uh, one of the original guys that assisted with the foundations of Earth Sanctuaries with John Wormsley, the first fence sanctuaries that are still operational. Scotia, there's a couple in the Adelaide Hills. And um, Chris sits on the Committee of Management for Devilark. He's also the president of the Foundation for Australia's Most Endangered, which was a major funder for the Qual Project. And so I was invited there um, and I released a Western Qual and... It was a wonderful project. I know it's still having challenges because, like, you can't take your finger off the pulse. You've got a constant tide of ferals coming. You've got sporting shooters and baiting and that happening. But it's, um, it's really challenging because, you know, if you look away for a year, you, you, you'll be back where you were. And, um, but initiatives like that just have to continually be rolled out. And, you know, without it seeming like animals are just being, you know, natives are being put to the slaughter, but we can't accept that, oh, well, they're gone. Bad luck, that's it. And so really commendable what he's done out there. He said he's put something like 12,000 baits out a year. Yeah, it's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? So this is the thing um, with conservation fencing, you know, predator-proof fencing. And I do not advocate for a day when my kids or their kids can uh, only see animals behind fences. So I'm, I'm not that. But fencing still brings in connotations of captivity, and it shouldn't. It's not as nice as the wild, I get it, but we're talking about a species and habitat recovery system which is outside the realms of, uh, you know, agriculture and feral pests and um, uh, other things. But when someone looks at an island, and let's say the island is a 1,000 hectares, they don't look at it as captivity. But the ocean around that island is no different than a fence, a fence protecting native wildlife within a sanctuary. And I like to, to view it like that because... It doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sure for people that hear that, you think, well, it's so easy. I mean, they're surrounded by a sea. They can't get it. It's a, it's a, it's a barrier. Um, or they're surrounded by a fence. And the reality is that the fence is there to keep the ferals out, not keep the natives in. But without that at the minute, and, and the balance is, I mean, geez, you think somewhere like that project in the Flinders, I mean, how do you fence it? Um, even if you could, you've got all the considerations of, you know, community access and public thoroughfare and roads and fence breach and degradation of the fence and um, it's extreme. And then you go to the efforts and think about how many of those baits have to go out to make it sustainable. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've pondered this, you know, really a lot over time and I've talked with friends about it. And I guess that to draw the longbow, it's like, Jesus, is it all worth like? Is it all worth it? You know, is really, can you stop the tide and is everything just hopeless? And I guess the thing is with the wild places and the rate at which they're diminishing and the, the, the animals within them and the rest, I've resolved that it's, um, it's okay to think that we're just buying time. 
And if these places can be kept wild and they mean something to us and they're very important now, surely in 100 years when there's less of them, they're going to be more important to whoever cares about them then than they are now because there's a lot less of them. And so for species and habitat, just buying that time seemingly is okay. And if someone's got to put out 12,000 baits a year for the next 100 years, well, hopefully in 100 years someone cares more about it. Um, and puts out twenty four thousand baits um, or whatever, but you know it's uh, it's a real it's there's there is nothing simple about it, and it's people like you in places like this that ensure that hopefully future generations will care by yeah. having that close up experience. Like we saw some of your yeah, reptile show earlier, yeah. and kids are patting and engaging animal with animals. Freaks could say patting the funnel. No, no. Well, it is um, it is an important aspect, and I I said before about myself feeling like I have a position that's really well-rounded but even that extends beyond um you know my upbringing was well-rounded but the reptile park and then we've got mass conservation activities but the thing is that um i'm still a big advocate and supporter of of zoos um you know under the right regulations and 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 you know zoos like us um and i i think that there is a really strong place for them forever and the reality is that most people aren't going to go to the plains of Africa and see an elephant. Most people aren't going to go to the islands of Komodo and see a Komodo dragon. And I am firmly of the belief that people will not care about what they don't understand. And you can't understand a Komodo dragon from a book or television screen. You need to see it. You need to see that look in its eye and you need to have some development. And so in that regard, as a conduit between you know, wildlife and, and connecting those people with nature, it's a very important role. And I really believe that. It's why I do what I do. And so if you wanted to look at it, the benefits of me visiting wildlife tourism facilities as a kid resulted in us operating one of the largest not-for-profit conservation sanctuaries in New South Wales. And it wouldn't have happened otherwise. And you don't find a lot of people that haven't started with those foundations. And so as an organisation, it's a native wildlife experience. Our conservation facilities, it's a really nice, wholesome project it's a beautiful way to educate and that leads us on to devil's ark yep so the devils are in a bit of a bad way in the wild yeah still are um it's a very complex issue so in 1996 an amateur photographer photographed a devil in the northeast of tasmania with gross lesions and lumps all over its face and that would turned out to be devil facial tumor disease since 96 somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of the population has been decimated you know it's not known how many there were in 1996, but estimated 150,000, maybe a little bit more. But that's significantly reduced now, more than significantly reduced. It's been 21 years, much, much, much work, and I think around 50 million bucks, don't quote me on that, but close to has gone into devil facial tumour disease research. And, you know, I'll get in trouble for saying it, but realistically, if that hadn't been spent, the devil would be in the same state as it is right now. And it hasn't actually had a significant outcome. The textbooks and have learned a lot more, and that's you know that research is a very important tool, but it hasn't provided solution. At the moment, a functional component of the overarching Save the Devil program is the insurance population. It works. It's working. Its goal is to preserve the genetic base, retention of wild behaviours, be cost efficient over time, and simply mean that not only is the devil not lost if it goes extinct in the wild, but the existing genetic diversity is not lost and equally as important. The disease was forecast to be extinct. Uh, the species were on a trajectory by 2015. That's come and gone. You know, even in the areas where the disease was first found, there's still 1% to 3% of devils. The disease seems that it's density related, like a wildfire. 
lots of fuel burns hot slows down harder to transmit there's been much work into vaccines and cures and there is a vaccination that i think works for like 12 months but if you vaccinated a devil put it out in the landscape it's going to get death by tumor is that mainly what the 50,000 uh, 50 million has gone into oh no it's been incredibly diverse what it's gone into oh. but most of it has studied yeah. cancer um you know, there's been some wonderful outcomes. Like th- there are really sound research components, which have been the in situ managing and monitoring of devils, um, the look at the evolution of the cancer, um, and so that stuff is is important. But you know, there are other areas that uh, that realistically, and when I say um, without that research, the devil would be in the same state again. Complementing that, much of it has been beneficial. In that you're talking components of disease evolution, you're talking components of the in situ decline of devils. So that stuff, all, all wonderful, but real, you know, other areas such as vaccine, it's um, extensive effort into it. And again, only comment on the current states. 21 years later, there's no vaccine, there's no cure, um, and it's detracted massively. There's often media messaging, you know, new gene found or new vaccine. The devil has not changed in any way from it the insurance population works on a simple premise in that you acquire all the existing wild genetics and you put them in a safe haven away from the disease landscape with the overarching intent and the fullness of time to maintain the tasmanian devil in the landscape in tasmania putting devils back to places death by tumor not okay at this point in time there's island management down there, a forestier Tasman Peninsula. Uh, we send devils to and support. It's fenced, it's disease-free. I mean, their role in Tasmania is um, is critical. Uh, you guys been to Tassie? Yep. Yeah, you see the abundance of mammals. You know, you'd look to your left, there's a bandicoot, there's a potteroo, there's a bedong, there's a quoll, there's a... And that's what mainland should be like. We've forgotten. You know, I, I get the stark reminder, I go to Tassie and there's, there's even the roadkill. And, like, roadkill's horrific, but it's signed that there's something there to be run over. Mm-hmm. And then I drive up through the Barringtons. Uh, you know, I spend... A, I don't see anything. There's no roadkill. There's no animals. Or no mammals. And so the thing down there is that the devil's role... I mean, eastern quolls now are on a downward trajectory. They're not diseased. It's not like that. But it's seemingly the case that the devil has decreased in numbers. The fox... Oh, sorry. There's no fox in Tassie. Um, the devil has decreased in numbers. Cat numbers have increased. What impact that has on others. But, you know, it's a well known that a trophic species, top order predator like a devil, at least in that ecosystem, is really functional and really necessary. And so 21 years, population's reduced by, uh, by that amount. So in 2006, the Tasmanian government, the Zoo Aquaria Association got together with organisations, four initially, uh, Reptile Park was one of, and an insurance population was, was necessary and created. So Reptile Park received some of the first devils, and by 2009, we'd bred up to uh, 50. And these are managed in very intensive conditions in that you've got to build an enclosure per devil, which means daily observations, daily husbandry, daily, you know, one, one individual at a time. And basically, the big brains told us that... Um, to have a functional population of, of devils that really served as an insurance population required somewhere between um, 500 to 1,500 or maybe even 5,000 devils. And because you've got to see, if you've got 200 devils, you have to get, it seems like a big number, but, you know, like 25% are too old and retired. 25% or more are too young to breed. And then of your effective population, half are boys. So by the time you get down to the actual, you know, it's not a big number. And so on that note, by 2009, um, the zoo industry had committed massively. 
and a lot of funds, a lot of resource, but it was full, kind of 200 devils, and it hadn't reached its quota. Beyond that, they're really complex issues that Tassie devils in a reptile park environment, they cost between five and $20,000 a year, depending on the organization, per devil. Do that by 200 over 20 years, you got a lot of money. Um, so the reality was that there were cost inefficiencies. There are things that happen to devils in reptile park scenarios in that they tend to become more diurnal, they lose their wild behavioral traits. Again, it's, it's very cost inefficient. Breeding will be selected for animals that are suitable for those type, uh, you know, so, so it's a compromise. And so at that point, we had the, uh, the thought that we really wanted to engage heavily in this conservation project. And the reason for that is that the disease was unique. Tasmania, the habitat's okay. Feral pests aren't an issue for the devil. It's this disease. And if you can overcome it, the le- you know, opposed to other things where you just can't get rid of the fox and cat, if hypothetically you could click your fingers and take the disease away today, the devil would be fine in the landscape. That's not the issue. Um, and we really believed in that, let alone that you know the thylacine is dear to all of us and we just can't lose this species. And also in a reptile park environment breeding devils, you have to see that... Um, if you put two devils into an enclosure, I don't know, like the size of your house, they don't breed. The female won't settle. She's not comfortable to go den somewhere. Um, they don't get along. There's injuries, complexities. So we thought, okay, well, this reptile park type management, you know, the typical zoo enclosures not working, cost too much. They don't breed. They don't get along. They're losing their behavioral traits. So somewhere between the size of this enclosure, the size of your house in Tasmania, they will get along. It will become efficient. They will keep their behavioural traits and they will reproduce successfully. And that was the pursuit of Devil Ark. We ended up on land in the Barringtons owned by the Packer family who, uh, who gave us the land within a week and infrastructure and whatnot. And it came on the condition that here's the land, don't ask us for money. We've honoured that and they've honoured their part. It's been a wonderful thing. We went from having 500 hectares of land to now 2,000. And so I went knocking back there a, uh, a, you know, a year ago and, and talked to the Packer family and the manager at Elliston and said, we'd like to expand. Now we want to move from species recovery into habitat recovery. And again, the family stepped up and said, um, well, here you go. Here's another 1,500 hectares of land and, and just wonderful. And, but back to the devils and devil arc, somewhere between the size of a, a zoo-type enclosure in Tasmania is going to work. And we went and constructed a whole bunch of uh, exclosures with predator-proof fencing. About 10 kilometres of fencing initially, we made 15 enclosures. They varied in size between uh, one hectare, which is two football fields, to three hectare, which is six football fields. And basically, there's three lots of devils at the ark. Two young to breed, two old to breed, breeding. So... The smaller yards are used for crèche yards. So uh, when you're bred and harvested from a yard, you put in with all your that year's cohorts. And when you retire, we care for whole of life. And so when you retire, you come out of a yard and you go into a retirement yard, uh, well cared for, looked after. So basically the model is that when you're two years old, you go into a breeding yard, three hectare. You're in there with eight devils, four males, four females. And what happens is um, you, you're born in there, but we can't have you in there to breed with your mum or dad so at 12 months old you're removed put into a social yard until you're two then you're reconfigured the whole thing's managed by a gigantic stud book and we know everyone's individually identified microchip and so at two years old you go back into a breeding yard you stay in there and breed until you're five at which point you go to the retirement yard and we did that and it took the cost of devils down 1500 bucks a devil per year behavioral traits 
wonderful, really wild, solidly nocturnal, timid, non-aggressive, non-confrontational, reproductive. Um, and so as that is a component, at our highest, we've had 200 devils and we sit now at about 160 or something like that, really genetically uh, representative of the wild population, um, sent a bunch of devils back to Tassie. And the thing is that we went into it. We know this might be a 20, 30-year project. It is what it is, and we're committed to it. But what happened throughout that process is we fell in love with the Barrington Tops. And the Barringtons is halfway up through New South Wales, really interesting area. On the eastern side of it, it's about 70 k's from the coast, maybe 100. On its eastern side, at you know 100 to 300 metres above sea level, you can catch Stevens Bandits, Diamond Python, Southern Angleheaded, you've got Bowerbirds, Birds of Paradise. You drive 20 minutes up a hill and you're in subalpine snow country with highland copperheads. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy and it, it's just a really profound spot like that. So we fell in love with the Barringtons and all my time spent up there, um, we sadly noticed what was missing. It's a, a wonderful landscape of, of, of nature, but it's lost all of its small mammals. The herbivores that are in there are all the stuff that's too big for the fox and cat to eat. So from redneck wallaby, swamp wallaby, grey kangaroo, wallaroo, wombat. Anything smaller than that's been consumed by the fox and cat. And so on the successful pioneering methodology of Devil Ark, we created Aussie Ark. And that took out an umbrella to bring in other species like the endangered brush-tailed rock wallaby, eastern quoll, long-nosed potteroo, southern brown bandicoot, uh, rufous bedong, and palmer wallaby. And just 100 years ago, they were all common in that area. They're mostly gone now. And 1,000 years ago, the devil was in that mix too, maybe 3,000 years ago. Um, But basically, we look now to establish, and we've already got all of these species, and establish insurance populations, build up the numbers, and from the semi-intensive management of the ark, we then move out into large fence sanctuaries. So those animals that you just mentioned, the the betong, the palmer... Yep. Uh, the rock wallaby, the brush-tailed yep. rock wallaby. They, are they all housed together? Yeah, no. So what it is, so if you imagine um, we've got like a an, an engine room and within a 35-hectare area, we've got all of these species. I mean, some of the smaller mammals, the the, uh, the bandicoot and potteroo can co-house. But at the moment, these are all kept in... So there's, geez, there's seven brush-tailed rock wallaby facilities and these are enclosures that are, you know, the size of a standard house block. They're not, they're not massive, they're not the wild. But what happens here is that we have to genetically manage them. This, so brush-tailed rock wallaby, seven enclosures, big rock mound in each. When the founders come in, we keep them in groups of one male, three females. And at present, we're breeding up to then be able to harvest young and release to the fence sanctuaries. But we don't want to compromise the engine room. If something happens in the fence sanctuary, I don't know, um, a fox gets in, a wildfire, we prevent against all these things, of course, but the engine room will always have its insurance policy. So if you look at that, then you come across, there's 20 eastern quoll facilities. There's 75 quolls in there. Um, we've just yesterday announced uh, the birth, uh, we, we, this year's produced 51 joeys. That little engine room for quolls can produce. And so when you go out into the larger sanctuaries, yes, it will be a mixed self-sustaining suite, of the fauna that was in the Barringtons 100 years ago. But that engine room, if you consider, there's species-specific facilities for the quolls, for the bandicoots, for the bedongs, for the potteroos, for the wok wallabies and the devils. And they're all managed. And they're managed in a format, for, for the imagination to see, somewhere between what you'd see at a wildlife tourism facility and the wild. 
They're still heavily landscaped, but they're controlled and we've got access to the animals. And that really is species recovery. That's quite intensive management. Beyond that, transitioning is to habitat recovery. And, uh, and that means fixing a platform. And in this case, our case, it's, it's fencing. Exclude predators. It's not logged, it's not grazed. There's obvious benefits to all the species that live there and call it home now that can also benefit from it. But we start and, uh, start and release and translocate into those areas. And, uh, and look, for want of a better term, we just want it to be what it was like pre-European settlement. It's that easy to imagine. It used to be a way, and we're going to turn it back to that. And uh, with that species recovery and habitat recovery, it's a nice compliment. And very much we're of the belief that um, species recovery is great. And if you've got 10 of a species left on Earth, it's the best way to manage them. But the whole goal is to keep them in the wild, right? And so the platform has to be fixed. And it's seemingly the case now that in a, you know, an often research-dominated landscape... We're monitoring species to extinction. We know a lot about them. A lot of people are doing... I mean, we've got to build up that knowledge base too, but the reality is we pay a lot of attention to the species and not a lot of attention to its home. And uh, and so for us, the species recovery and habitat recovery components mean that we're of the big belief if the species doesn't have a platform to save itself, it's pointless. Otherwise, you'll just have it behind wire. And so really addressing that um, that component... We're really big believers in it and think, again, that's um, a part that's, that's sadly lacking. So many times you read reports and it says in the back that education is part of the, the issue and putting back habitat, you think maybe instead of writing some of these reports, you could just be growing local native plants and getting them in the ground and yeah. putting back habitat and yep. nesting and, boxes. And yeah, agreed. And I think, and again, noting that there is a lot of that that happens, but it's really often individual champions doing it, community groups even, you know, champions doing it. And it needs to be rolled out much more broad scale. You know, I mean, we're at, Australia's at war with the dingo. And I see both sides of the story. You know, it presents problems to agriculture. But, you know, our, our own parks are at war with it. And you can't drive into a park without seeing wild dog baiting. Wild dog is a very convenient term given to a dingo. I mean, if it walks like a duck, looks like a duck and quacks, it's a duck. The importance of a dingo is not the issue of purity. That misses the mark. If it breeds once a year in winter, like all dingoes do, it lives in a pack and provides an ecological function, it's a bloody dingo. And the thing is that, and I I do get both sides of the story, but, you know, where you have dingoes, they control large herbivores. So your impact on environment, and where you don't have them, the herbivores are out of control. Where you have dingoes, you've got a control, to some degree, fox and cat populations. And predators don't get along, and dingoes outcompete fox and cat. And so you remove the dingo... You've let the herbivores go nuts and ruin the environment. You've let the fox and cat predate everything. And that's what's happening. And the whole frustrating thing is that dingoes sincerely represent one of the only natural measures of controlling feral pests in the country. But we're at war with them. And our own parks are at war with them. And it just doesn't make sense. Um, Mate, we're from Adelaide. We're south of the dog fence. Yeah. Um, mm. Steve put on a reptile expo a couple of years ago. And we weren't allowed to bring in dingoes like captive bred dingoes yeah, for no, education. I know, and it's hard. And, and I, I, I get that agricultural component. Um, I really do. But, uh, I mean, you know, the best thing we could... And we, we've got national parks that control dingoes. And I don't get how that resource is appropriated there other than it benefits agriculture on the externals because there is no interest of the park or its flora or fauna that comes from removing dingoes. Fundamentally opposite. I just don't get it. 
this is a bit of a general question, but yeah, we hear all the time about you know, broad-scale land clearing, yeah. and we just feel so helpless about it, and people like yourself, and yeah. of course us, and people that are listening that are passionate about conservation, that's one of the massive players. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the thing is, and I love our organisations, Reptile Park and Aussie Ark, for this reason, that the world's a big place, and to try and fix everything would just ultimately end in failure for any individual. I like our organisations for the reason that we've talked about because our role in the Barringtons and the area that we are and the project, we want to do what we do well and execute it well and, and not spread ourselves too thin or not have pipe dream ambitions, you know, be really outcome focused. Same as the park. It has a heart, a soul and an identity and we know. So yeah, there are really big problems in the world um, and I can't think about them too much or I don't sleep. <laughs> and the thing is that land clearing, yeah, it's um, it's astronomical and even in... Every time I, I drive somewhere, I see just a few more trees gone, you know, and next time a few more trees, aside from land scale, chain clearing. Um, but really, we're chiseling away at it in every possible way. But, you know, I am a really a great realist, and the next thing is just something that I've explored very recently and, and may come as, come as interesting or a shock. And that is, um, so we talked earlier about my pursuit of chasing all of these animals throughout Australia. And... A lot of the time that I've been in North Queensland in particular um, and the Pilbara in particular, what's interesting is that the species that I'm looking for, which are often rare, obscure, endangered if you like, they're on mine leases or the peripheral land. And it it took me a while to realise that because in half the time I'm aware that I'm near a mine lease and I shouldn't be there, so I'm conscious of where it is. Um, But... I was targeting animals there. You know, I went up to Mount Isa a little while ago and uh, there's two species of grass wren, an endemic Australian little bird, often confined to old growth spinifex or lignum or uh, salt bush, etc. Both the birds around the Isa are on mine lease. If they're not, you won't find them. They're not on agricultural land. They're not on parks. And so generally speaking. And so anyway, I'm by no means advocating here or saying that I support or endorse mining activities. I, I don't know anything about them. It's not my field. But what I can say is that agriculture is significantly damaging and certainly for old growth spinifex or so, it just don't, they don't coexist. Parks, you know, government-managed parks um, seem to be under-resourced and so the management isn't at its highest level. And you realise you go to a mine and I've, I've looked into and see that, and, and by no means this is all mines, I don't know about coal seam, gas and open, I don't know, I'm just commenting on what I've seen. But you find then that these areas that I went to, the mine footprint is like 1.5% of the total land that they have, 1.5%. And then they're heavily regulated and have the resource to deliver what they're regulated for. So it's not really that much of a surprise when you start to think about it that their species are actually better off than the park next door or the agricultural block or areas that feral pests aren't managed, which is most of it. And I found that profound. And I mean, you know, you try, uh, I would never try and sell, and I appreciate why the mines don't, that mining's good for the environment. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can't, I can't. But, but, uh, but it's a really interesting concept. And so, um, and, and, and a really complex concept. And so the dynamic in Australia between the overarching feral pest activities, you know, broad scale land clearing or mining or agriculture, or I don't know where it starts and where it ends. It's tragic. And I, um, I don't know really what Australia looks like in 50 years. The changes just that I've seen in my short life 
are unbelievable. And this pursuit of the animals now, one of the outcomes of it is, you see, my kids, I mean, they've seen an incredible amount themselves. And I don't care so much for their list. They can do that when they're old if they want to and whatnot. But what I'm really lucky to have seen when I was a kid was the baselines as they were 30 years ago. I didn't know I was seeing them. But my kids now are seeing things as they are. And the, so those two grass friends they saw a month ago, let's say, who knows if they're there in 20 years? And so that baseline that they're seeing for them, that will be the normality of how things are. And how I saw it isn't the normality for them. And it's a real problem with you know, generational turnover that the baselines aren't what they were. And so what someone thinks is normal isn't how it actually used to be. And so at least my kids are seeing places like they are now. And hopefully for them in 30 years, they know that this ain't normal or it's better or it's worse. Undoubtedly, land clearing and fragmentation is, is not good. And what to do about it? I don't know. Well, I think by having places like this, you're planting seeds in kids' heads and yeah, yeah. the future generation, hopefully. Well, and, and at some point when it reaches critical mass and there's not much left, and there's already not much left, but at some point it has to stop and we're going to run out of bush to clear. And hopefully before that gets too far and, and, and like we are now, but um, as I say, we buy a bit of time and it just becomes more valuable. What's so, left? Hmm. So the whole thing, like doing this podcast and that, you, you hear there, there's loads of positives, I admit, but there's far more negatives. Oh, it's and I, won, I wonder sometimes how we all control, like how do you control, because you put yourself right yeah, yeah. out there on the yeah. con- conservation side, how do you control that pressure on yourself? Well, in a number of ways. Alcoholism. Alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. There's a bottle of Fireball. <laughs> Let's go for it. And, and thank thanks for listening. For listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm, I'm really lucky in that um, I've got a really diverse opportunity to be in a lot of different areas from exposure to politics, to local governments, to conservation community, to business community. And it's all, all really intricate. And I think part of what helps me is that I understand why things are like they are, that they're really bad. But being able to understand it means that you're not just in a desperate state of what's going on. I at least appreciate why it's happening. Again, I don't don't like it or, or, or you know support it. But that helps me. Beyond that, as I, I just said a minute ago, it's nice to resolve in your own mind that I'm going to do what I'm going to do well and be really outcome-focused. And, you know, this behind me just here... The Australian Reptile Park last year won the New South Wales State Business of the Year. First time a zoological organisation has ever won it. You can't nominate for that award. It's gifted to you. Um, and that business mentality is how we manage conservation. And it lacks. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's an outcome-driven process that has accountability and outcome. Um, and that's really been, been lacking. And so you ask about how do we sleep at night knowing all this terrible stuff's happening well that concentration on being able to do what we do well and execute it well and who knows where it goes in the future but I find that immensely comforting yeah I, I, I remember we did the podcast with Tracy from Faith yep yeah yeah I know Tracy well <laughs> <laughs> and and I was so fascinated by her because really what she brings to the table she's amazing is yep. business yeah yeah. And that is great. I think that's just a winning solution. No, it is. And it's, again, I, and I, I sound like I'm um, constantly bagging them out. I've, I mean, I've got some wonderful friends, academics, that have spent twice my lifetime achieving outcomes for natives, and no doubt about it. But the model of research-based conservation, and it's not the academic's fault, but it's not based for the outcome. It was to, The dictionary definition of research is learn, observe, watch, 
it doesn't say act, it doesn't say outcome, it, and that's okay. But I said before about Australia waking up, the thing is that it's seemingly just the case now that we're only just starting to look at the scoreboard. And I don't know how it's gone on for so long, but even just that that lack of outcome and lack of an identifiable scoreboard and lack of accountability is fundamentally the most important thing that could possibly happen. And, you know, Tracy and Foundation for Australia's Most Endangered, Chris Chapman, not only do they have a, a, a measurable and identifiable scoreboard, they're also not afraid to tackle the hard issues. And, you know, by hard issues, I mean that it's necessary to kill feral cats and it's necessary to identify a methodology that can, of course, humanely and, of course, with welfare considerations. Um, but some organisations won't touch that because it's a sensitive issue. Fame is focused on the fact that they're interested in native wildlife conservation. It's not an agenda against a cat. But they'll tackle hard issues like that and they'll tackle issues that, um, that others won't. And I guess, too, the thing is that, you know, philanthropy in Australia is not what it is, let's say, in the US. We're a much smaller area. There are some incredible people that, that, that do, but we have a smaller base. And I, I guess, too, and I've harped on about this a bit, and it's with no intentional agenda against the other species, but, you know, like there's 500,000 elephants in the wild. If you ask my mum that, she'd probably say, oh, maybe 1,000 or two, there's 500,000. And I, I know that there are different species of elephant and some of them are critically and I, I get that but like there's 120,000 orangutans and I'm aware that the problem with them is that that's halved in one generation and there's a different but you know there's 100 northern hairy-nosed wombats there's 20 orange-bellied parrots there's 50 dibbler there's less than a thousand numbats I could go on and on and on and on and most Australians don't know what this stuff is and so um you know the ability to attract funding capabilities with pandas or orangutans or elephants i get that but you know we we shouldn't neglect the little brown furry australian things just because they're not as pretty and there's there's obviously keystone things to do i mean if you can keep a bandicoot alive in a patch of bush then that bush itself is probably okay meaning you believe you know there, there are different ways of protecting that that habitat itself and I guess even on that note, yeah, it's, it's very hard just to raise money for the bush. Certainly, it seems like changes in the wind in that there is a great recognition that the way things are being done isn't working. It's, I think, a promising time. I think that's one of the reasons we started this show is because there is a lot of people that want to make a difference, but I think people yep. are confused on how do they start. Oh, that's right. Well, and as I say, part of that problem is, um, is the continual feed of, of, of good news stories. And so people want to buy into it and start, and they do. Um, and I mean, a lot of people pursue that, but there's a lot of people that I'm sure want to do that. Maybe even give five bucks somewhere. Maybe a hundred bucks. Maybe a thousand bucks. Million. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah. Um, and but just with the, the feedback that everything is rosy, and we've got to tone that down again to that balance between doom and gloom, and everything's okay. But um, I mean, for people to start, it's yeah, it is hard. Aside from saying just you know, just give us your money. I mean, there are the obvious things of local land care groups, local bush care groups, um, you know, community and volunteers organisations that people can get engaged in. I think one of the best things we can do and for people like that is just talk about it. Just every chance you get, talk about it. And if that um, means the pursuit of, you know, seeing the, 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 the areas you visit and being interested in, a lot of people do this, but that's the best thing we can do. Grab a kid's ear and tell them all about it. Well said, mate. Yeah. And what a shining star of an example is this place here. It's privately run. Yeah. And you've monetised conservation. The money goes right back into yeah. the conservation of our mammals. And you've got, is it 50 staff here and about 80 volunteers? Yeah, 40, 42 full-time staff, about 80 volunteers on any one week. And 
The volunteer opportunities really flow into our uh, employment of staff. Sadly for the volunteers, we probably don't have a high enough staff turnover that they would like um, and good retention of staff. But And beyond that, the opportunities, I think we, we generally are able to say that at any one time, around about 60 staff at any one time are employed throughout Australia in the zoological community that started here as volunteers. And that's not including the current employees of Reptile Park. We're a really level and wonderful platform for that because we're big enough and bad enough that we do a lot of cool things and we're small enough that we still have an incredible morale we're small enough that we've got adaptability and volunteers really get exposed to things of conservation business management customer service wildlife tourism facilities animal care and husbandry um, staff management and so that in itself typically makes the staff really employable and so they do quite well in industry moving on from here and it's something that we're very proud about not just the volunteer opportunities we're quite strict on who comes on as volunteers too i mean You've got some lifestyle volunteers that just want to help out, and they're a very small portion, appreciated portion, but a small portion. But mostly we take the younger guys that are involved in extracurricular activities like TAFE courses that really want to get into the industry and give them a platform. And if not employment here because of a lack of opportunity, they are really desirable throughout industry and do quite well. Mate, thank you so much for your time. No, my pleasure. Lovely to talk about and be listened to and chat about that stuff. Yeah, massive fan of that stuff. Mm. Important stuff. And uh, you've got to get up to the ark. Why don't next time I meet you up there or, or take you up there? And, um, and have the same chat sitting under a couple of trees with a few devils around our feet. We will absolutely do that. I'd love to do that. We wanted to go there this time. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it's just a shorter visit. Yeah. And we have to do that. That yep. would be awesome. Lovely. Mate, thanks so much. And, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening.